0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Here in Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on Patreon.com. I'm joined by Dr. Vince Bantu. Um, He's assistant professor of church history um, and black church studies. We're going to be talking about his recent book, A Multitude of All Peoples and the Global Identity of Christianity. So, Vince, thank you so much for joining me. How are you?
1: Oh, great. Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation to look at like the global identity of Christianity and looking at like early history of um, diversity within the Christian community. So um, to start off, could you like introduce yourself, talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Oh, sure. Uh,
1: well, kind of like you said, um, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I kind of wear two main hats. Um, you know, I teach uh, church history and black church studies at Fuller Seminary. Uh, and then I also uh, run the Meacham School of Hymenote, uh, which is a, a biblical and Afrocentric seminary that uh, kind of the purpose of it is to provide contextualized and and accessible theological education for ministry leaders in the black community. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, it's kind of like, um, but they both kind of intersect and really my heart and sense of call is to again like really teach on and also provide uh theological education uh for the for really the global body of christ but i have a specific call especially for uh leaders in the black community and especially with uh just really trying to encourage and uh us with uh, really the knowledge of uh just the way that the gospel has been among african people since day one so
0: Mm, that's so awesome. And I look forward to kind of getting into this um, talking about like Christian identity and like the Silk Road and Africa and Middle East and just mm-hmm. all these different areas. So do you want to talk a little bit about like what got you interested in like Christian history and like the identity of the early church and like things along these lines.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think that what got me interested in it at first was uh, it really goes back to when I first got saved. Uh, I, I got saved at a young age. You know, my mom was a Christian. You know, I grew up um, grew up in a single parent household as a, as a kid. And my uh, my mom, um, uh, you know, was a believer, shared the gospel with me and I got saved at an early age. Um, and uh, and I always had a lot of questions about the connection, the intersection between religious identity and racial identity or cultural identity, Uh, just because I grew up in St. Louis, which is like uh, a very segregated city. I would say it's probably the most segregated city I've ever seen, uh, just in the sense that uh, it's just so consistently and dramatically segregated, like there's literally a street that cuts it in half. Uh, Mm -hmm. I grew up, you know, kind of uh, like the north of that is black, and south part is more white. And I grew up just maybe about a mile north of that line. So I grew up in a black community, but uh, my church was on the south side of that line. So I grew up in a predominantly white church. So I always kind of was wrestling with, you know, how do I how do I kind of reconcile who I am culturally and the neighborhood I'm growing up in and how I identify myself, and then what I'm seeing kind of as uh, as what Christianity is, which didn't really, uh, you know, it was a church of great people and that loved the Lord, but they, um, you know, to, you know, there was a mix of people who weren't either able or willing to, uh, empower, you know, people who looked and sounded like me from my context to figure out what it means to walk with Jesus by as, as he made us. But there was like a, either most of the times unspoken actually, uh, but also a very real message that was basically not only saying, uh, you know, that oftentimes, Sanctification or walking with Jesus will often take the form of assimilating to white middle class American culture and sometimes without people even being aware of it. So I was always very um, aware of that and uh, in a subconscious way, but I wasn't able to articulate it. And I think the part when it really hit me because I I have a heart for evangelism Mm -hmm. uh, and I ever since I was a kid you know I'd be you know when I got saved I just had a heart to go and run around and you know just tell everybody about Jesus and and um and I would struggle with uh and I would realize that like a lot of times when I try to bring some of my friends from my neighborhood to church uh they just wouldn't feel comfortable rightly so understandably so and and even many of the churches in our neighborhood uh you know uh, even if folks look like us uh, there wasn't a cultural connecting point where people sounded or acted like us. And so there was still, even in churches in the neighborhood, there was a sense of kind of like you have to check your identity at the door uh, to be able to come in and be a part of the church. And so that always really uh, was a sensitive, like kind of a point of, of, of um, really a passion for me of just really wanting uh, people to, oh, at first I kind of just saw a problem and didn't really know of a solution. And I'll and I'll tell you um, the, the passage one day uh, that the Lord really God just spoke to me through the word of God. Um, and uh, the passage that really stuck with me was Acts chapter 10, when Peter had this encounter with the Lord and the Lord was preparing him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But it was actually really Peter who was the one that needed to learn a lesson and uh, and there was you know the first Gentile Christian named Cornelius but if you know Cornelius in the story is actually just presented as a God-fearing Centurion who uh, you know God hears his prayer and he obeys and God tells him to go to Joppa and he obeys and 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 it's really Peter who's actually the one that is the the one that, who's you know already a Christian and an apostle mm-hmm. but he's actually the one that doesn't get it uh, and, and 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 when God gives him this vision, of of these animals and says kill and eat and peter says i don't eat unclean things god told him don't call anything unclean what i've made clean and and we know that that god was preparing him to receive gentiles into the church and not only receive them into the church, but later in Acts 15, when they were having the, the council was having a whole debate about whether or not Gent- all these Gentile Christians that are coming into the church, do they need to be circumcised? Like Essentially, do they need to become like Jewish people? And, and the Holy Spirit led them in deciding no. And this was the fulfillment of prophecy that God's house would be a house of prayer for all nations. And so not only really is everybody acceptable in the, the in the household of God, but also they're acceptable as they are. They don't have to culturally convert to Judaism. You know, there's no holy language in the gospel. There's no holy land. There's no holy ethnic group um, or nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. Um, but we are a uh, a, uh, we are a chosen genos. We are a chosen race, uh, that are in every nation, tribe and tongue. And, and that Christianity is not associated with any one particular culture, even though it's often presented that way. But the truth that we see in scripture that was revealed to me at that time was very encouraging. And then I think the, so, so that made me really interested in how can we just get this message out there? Because I was really concerned about the fact that even though this is the truth of scripture, which I was not really discipled into really seeing, um, I was discipled with what I think is a problem that we really have in the global church today, especially in the States, which is really a kind of a hypocritical um, kind of double message that is contradictory. On the one hand, there's a message that consciously says race doesn't matter don't worry about it. The only color that matters is the blood, and you know, only thing that matters is we're Christian or we're Christians first, and then there was a or whatever. There's this colorblind or this this theology that really minimizes or even just kind of throws out uh, culture and race and ethnicity, mm. and we see them as kind of temporary obstacles that we have to overcome rather than a divinely mandated created aspect of who God meant us to be. And as Revelation 7, 9 shows us that we're going to be forever. And so we have a mm-hmm. bad theology that on one hand says, don't worry about, or don't think about race or culture, ethnicity, it doesn't matter. But then at the same time, there's a subconscious way in which we, we present theology uh, in very Westernized American Eurocentric ways, we have whether it's a painting of a white Jesus, or whether it's the fact that people who run our churches, denominations, or seminaries are all white men, uh, or you know, we we have these subconscious ways of 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 stating without stating it that, but really, white men need to be in charge of the church, and the best way to be a Christian is to do it like the way white men do it, um, and we don't realize that we're doing that all the time uh, or oftentimes, but that's that, so that's kind of a A um, a, again, a contradictory pill that many people of color are given to swallow, and are often more able to see it than even sometimes white Christians are. And so, I was really sensitive to that, and wanted to be able to. I started reading books, and I went. The Lord opened up the door. I go to. I went to Christian college to study theology, uh, and I started reading all these books on missiology and theology and culture and evangelism and culture, and like kind of the intersection of Christianity and race and racism, and you know, just really passionate about again the world understanding. Uh, That, again, that being a Christian does not mean you check your identity at the door. Mm. There's no contradiction between being black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native, whatever, and being a Christian. But they go they go together. Um, and, And but but the thing that really got me into like my specific field. Of studying like ancient Christianity in Africa and Asia was actually came when I went to seminary, and I, I you know, I had no idea what seminary was. I just wanted to go mm-hmm. study the Bible, so I went to college, and then they told me there's a thing called seminary. So I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna do that too." Then I want to do it all. I, wanna, I just can't get enough. And uh, and I went to seminary. In my first semester, uh, I took a class on early African Christianity, and it was actually in Egypt. And that was my mm-hmm. introduction. Now, again, mind you, I had just had a whole Christian theological education as uh, in in college. And I hadn't heard anything about, you know, any of that hmm. stuff. And I just was, I was presented with church history and theology, the way, you know, I, like when I was in theology classes, I was being taught by almost all white men. The books we were reading were almost all written by white men. And the history we were learning, the theologians we were reading were pretty much all white men were, you know, hmm. People from, uh, you know, from the Roman Empire, like Greek, Latin theologians, and then European, and then the European Reformation, and then North American white men. And we didn't get to non-white people until uh, we talked about things in the 20th century. And so Mm -hmm. that even exacerbates a mentality that Christianity came from the West to the rest. And when I took this class, I was blown away. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I didn't know anything about this. And, and so I just really felt called to the Lord to say, you know, this is maybe the missing piece because there's a lot of great conversation going on in the church and in schools and and uh, seminaries and all these kind of things. There's a lot of great conversation going on about race and justice and identity and culture and Christianity. But I feel like that's the missing piece maybe in the conversation that doesn't get brought up is the fact that, um even in those conversations on race and culture and things like that, there's this assumption that Christianity one day became global, that it was hmm. Western or European, then it went out to the rest of the world. So it can it can even still exacerbate that perception. So I think it would be helpful if we realized that Christianity never became global. It's always been global from day one. And that has been among, you know, African and Asian and all, you know, all other, it's, it's been global and it's main, it's stayed that way. Uh, and that there are, and that from the beginning, there have been diverse ways of being a Christian, of worshiping and theologizing and doing church. Um, and that there's no sense in which the Western way is the only way to do it. And there's no, uh, so it really, we're in the same moment that Peter and the church was in in the book of Acts, where now instead of they were dealing with kind of a a Jewish cultural supremacy in the church, where there was a there was a sense in which many Jewish Christians felt that Gentile Christians needed to become Jewish, and it needed to become clear that no, and this is actually an agreement with Scripture in the Old Testament. And now we're in another place where we have to communicate that in the same way. There just like there is a white supremacy in the church, or there is a perception that Christianity is the white man's religion. That now we have to make it also now we have to kind of disentangle the church from white supremacy uh, and show that to become a Christian is not tantamount to becoming white or Western or Mm. American or what have you, Uh, but you can be a Christian and be who you are because in fact, Jesus created who you are racially and and culturally. And these are a part of our eternal aspect, our, our eternal identity and how we reflect the kingdom of God. And, and, and by inserting, conversations about the early church it just kind of helps to underline that truth and that reality that we see in scripture that uh that also is corroborated by history that historically speaking there is an entire there's entire branches of christianity that most of us don't even know about or hear about and we need to hear about them we need to know about them so that we can understand the strong roots that the gospel has among people of color, as well as in Europe, uh, we want to embrace all of it, but especially, like Paul says in First Corinthians twelve, to give greater honor to the parts that have lacked it. So many of us, mm. for example, many of us know the names of John Calvin or Martin Luther or Thomas Aquinas, or you know, uh, or you know, we we might not be able to say a lot about them, but we know their names. But mm-hmm. most. Well, even if they're church historians or seminary students or pastors, most folks haven't even, uh, let alone just regular folk. Most people have never even heard the names of Walata Petros or Georgius of Sagla or Narsai or Shenuda, and these are African and Asian theologians that that wrote just as much, sometimes more than Western folks whose names we mm-hmm. know. And so that's really the goal of, like, you know, my book, Most of All Peoples, and and really a lot of just what I do, uh, at, you know, in general is really trying to. Um, Yeah, just through history, uh, just kind of add to and build up the uh, and and promote the global um, the global presence of the gospel.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love your work in trying to promote this global presence of the gospel because it's such a cool thing to think about, um, the roots of Christianity just being um, so – just in so many different cultures and kinds of peoples. Um, So my next question for you is why do you think Christianity has been identified so often as like a white man's religion? Like especially like here in America, it's seen as like, oh, it's what the white people do, the white man's religion. Um, So why do you think that is the case?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I I would say – Uh, I would say that really, um, and you know, sometimes people, people, it's sort of like when you bring up Constantine people, some people Mm kind of like, they roll their eyes. because like, Oh my gosh, we hear about Constantine so much. Like why do we think on him? You know? And, uh, and I think, um, I think that, you know, we want to be careful to nuance things and understand that like questions like this are actually nuanced and they take like, like for example, like what you just asked, I actually cover it in the first chapter of my book, which is actually like, I don't know, like, I don't know, 60 something pages. So Mm, yeah. That that more than we can do in a podcast to answer things for sure. But at the same time, sometimes when you hear about things a lot, it's for a reason. And because uh sometimes, you know, the influence of something can't be overstated. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think overstate it'd be like it'd be like saying, What was 2020 like? And then you always <laughs> hear COVID come up a lot. And it's like, yeah. and then you almost think like, well, it's not like COVID was the only thing going on in 2020. <laughs> That's true, it wasn't, but I mean, is there's a reason if mm-hmm. uh, now if people are reading about the year 2020 and they keep seeing the the COVID there's a there's a good reason (laughs) because it was pretty influential and Mm -hmm. you did it come up, there might be a good reason for that. So, you know, while we don't want to like, while we want to understand that there's nuance and three dimensionality and a lot of complicated factors to that question. um, I think that, I think that probably one of the best and simplest answers, at least to start by answering that question is Mm -hmm. that Constantine, Uh, was the Roman emperor in the early 300s. And allegedly, he, you know, became a Christian. Now, for at least, I think we could say that he supported Christianity. It's a big question about whether or not he himself was a Christian, but um, he was seen that way, which is even, I think, actually more important uh, for this question about whether or not he actually was a Christian. What what matters is that he was seen as a Christian, not only Mm -hmm. by many of the leading figures in the Roman church, but also by even people in the Persian empire and even the Persian emperor saw him Mm -hmm. as a And saw the Roman Empire as a Christian nation. Now, As I said before, there's no such thing truly as a Christian nation. And it's never been in God's vision or plan for there to be a Christian nation uh, for, Mm. for the boundaries of the church to be encapsulated by the boundaries of a nation uh, and a nation's military and political geopolitical boundaries. Like we saw in the old Testament, which was a special case that God mandated specifically. And actually, uh, even when they called for a King, he said, this is a bad idea. So there's no Christian nation. Um, and, but the Christian people are in every nation embedded in every nation, tribe and tongue. Um, and, but once you had a Christian nation or a Christian empire, then that, uh, That really that was the first step. There's a lot of other ones that maybe we'll get into them. uh, But Mm -hmm. the first major notch where now for the first time you had Christianity being associated with a particular people. Now, to be to be sure, Constantine was actually not the first Christian king uh, and Mm -hmm. Rome not the first Christian uh, nation. But actually, Armenia became a Christian nation and their king, Tiridates, received the gospel even before a decade before Constantine did. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even before Armenia, there was a kingdom called Asrahini that had a king called Abgar that had also embraced the gospel. In fact, their tradition actually holds that the King Abgar of Asrahini, uh, where the language of Syriac was spoken, which is in modern day uh, southeastern Turkey and northern Syria, Mm -hmm. this kingdom where this King Abgar ruled, the tradition actually holds that he actually wrote a letter to Jesus and Jesus actually wrote him back I don't know if that happened, but we definitely know uh, for sure that's the oral tradition. But historical uh, corroboration uh, indicates that certainly by no later than the late second, early third century, that Asrahini was a Christian nation a century before Armenia. But these were smaller kingdoms that didn't have the kind of imperial and pervasive reach as the Roman Empire did. So when the Roman Empire steps in and also claims to be a Christian nation, uh, whose army and whose king yeah. are basically representatives of God on earth and therefore God sanctions uh their 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 economic and military and uh, political interventions and agenda that that sealed in a way it really sealed the deal and began a process of like religious identity politics mm. Christianity increasingly became associated with with even Western identity even as it itself was developing because I mean mm. In the in the thir- in the fourth century, there was the Roman Empire. And even what we now know as Western or white or Europe was pagans. They were barbarian. Mm-hmm. But even as they even as the idea of the West begins to formulate after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, starting in the fifth, sixth, seventh centuries, as you start to see the ethnogenesis of European nations like in England and then, you know, Fr- Gaul or France, Germany. Uh, uh scotland ireland as these nations these european nations begin to form and all they all um they all do two things they build themselves as the idea of christian nations they all have kings that have these conversion stories that whereas like christianity kind of gives birth to these new western emerging identities and the second thing is they all hearken back to and see themselves in the line of constantine uh you know charlemagne's one of the best examples charlemagne was the, the king of of the Carolingian dynasty that ruled in Gaul and also began to impose Christianity in Germania, Northern Europe. And he likened himself as a new Constantine. So it, you know, there's a lot of nuance to it, but basically that that's what I would say is how it started was once you had a major mm-hmm. world superpower call itself Christian, then that it almost like sealed the deal in a way to a degree of now you have introduced an idea that would poison and would do damage to the gospel in the greatest way you could possibly do which is communicating that Christianity is primarily for one people group or is primarily mm-hmm. associated with one people group and that was something that did not exist in the church prior to that. And in fact, as we know, the Bible goes, to, we already talked about that. The Bible communicates very clearly that even though God spoke first to the Jew and through the Jew, it was for the Gentiles, for the world. And even at the very beginning, God told Abraham that all nations will be blessed through your seed. So there's already a scope uh, for God's salvation in the, very, in the in the beginning of scripture. And there's no sense in which we see in Acts 15, there's no sense of, of cultural assimilation or that, well, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you really got to be act like a Jewish Christian. It's like it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. No, don't mm-hmm. act like a Jewish Christian. Be Gentile and be whatever you are um, in Christ Jesus. And uh, and so you know, but but once you had that start, that was the first. That was the beginning of it, and it's taken on various forms over the last seventeen hundred years. But we are still dealing with the. Din- we're still dealing both with the way that Christianity is presented uh, as mm-hmm. a man's religion, and again, I mean. White men are are in charge of most of the Christian institutions, denominations, churches, seminaries. And so that's a way that we're still sending that message, mm-hmm. whether we want to be sending it or not. We're sending it in in multitudes of ways. Um, but then at the same time, that creates the dynamic that many people of color around the world struggle with the idea of, of seeing it as how it's being presented and then feeling like they have to choose between their ethnic identity or their their christian identity which is not a choice that god has ever intended for any of us to make but when when constantine kind of uh or more maybe more accurately when the roman church began to present christianity as like a, in a very romanized way and presented it as coterminous with roman identity the first christians of color to ever have to deal with that that tension were persian christians in the persian empire mm-hmm. who began to be martyred for the faith because their faith which they had had since the first century Christianity. Yeah. Persian Empire from the very beginning, and it was there for three hundred years, and there was never a, 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 a sense in which Persian Christians were made to feel like you have to either be Christian or Persian. Even though mm-hmm. in Persia the national religion was Zoroastrianism, but even mm-hmm. though Zoroastrianism was the national religion of Persia, minority religions were still able to function and thrive. And there were Manichaeans, there were there were uh, Buddhists, Hindus, there were, and there were Christians of various sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, denominations were in persia and they lived relatively freely they were actually even more free than the roman christians at, at that yeah. time remember in the one and two hundreds the christians were being martyred in rome so mm. the crazy thing is that yeah. in, in the two hundreds it was actually safer to be a christian in what we now call iraq iran and afghanistan huh than it was to be a christian in what we now call italy and spain and greece uh mm. those, were the, those were the dangerous places to be a christian and and the middle east is was actually the safest place to be a christian um and so but that flipped when Rome said Christianity is a Roman religion, then the Persian empire began to say, well, if our enemies who they've been warring with and beefing with for a long time, if our enemies are Christian, then that means we can't have Christians in our nation because they're going to be traitors. Even though that yeah. was not true, the Persian Christians were still loyal, but they still were martyred um, because and they felt like they had to choose between, am I going to be a Persian or am I going to be a Christian, which was never a choice they had to make. And even today... Christians around the world, whether they're Japanese, whether they're Native American, whether they're African or African-American, Christians of color all around the world have to deal with that same issue of, you know, feeling like uh, like people I grew up around, feeling like if I become a Christian, it means that I have to stop being who I am culturally, which is not Mm. true. That's the feeling. So then they have to choose. And what happens is you either get for the most part. Now, this isn't the, the totality of it, but for the most part around the world, we either get people of color deciding to become a Christian and then they do often in various ways choose to either diminish or just reject their culture Mm -hmm. and their background and they become not only Christians but they become white western Americanized Christians you got a global body of Christ everybody always will say yeah Christianity is blowing up all over the world and it's actually more in African Asia than it is in in the global north and I'm like yes to a degree, that's great, but also to a degree that's concerning, because when I go around the world and I visit these churches, uh, or even in the States, uh, Christians of color, everybody's singing Hillsong. Like, <laughs> everybody's singing Hillsong just translated into their language. Everybody mm-hmm. being purpose-driven life just translate into their language. So everybody is being a Christian, but in a very Americanized, white, Western kind of way, rather than often articulating it in their own culture. But that's because we're still communicating this idea of white and Christian go together. That's one. The other side is you got people of color who see that happening. They see their own people converting not only to Christianity, but as soon as they convert to Christianity, they start acting real white or they start acting Mm. American or they start acting really Western. And so they see this and they're like, well, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And that's Mm. understandably get this perception that to become a Christian means to become white. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And then the, the chasm grows deeper to where now Islam or Hinduism or indigenous religions or indigenous African religions or indigenous Native American religions, they become seen as the polar opposite of Christianity. Mm. that these are our religions and Christianity is those white folks religions. And any of our people who become a Christian, they're really just becoming American or Western or white. And 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 so uh, and so this is why I would say that this perception that Christianity is a white man's religion is the Mm. biggest obstacle to the spread (laughs) of the gospel in the world. It is the biggest obstacle because, again, and the reason I say that is because the first person, somebody's first thing, someone's going to say when I say that is, "Well, how can you say that when there's so many Christians, people coming to Christ in mm-hmm. China, Korea, and Nigeria, and everywhere all over the world?" And that's when I say to them, again, those two things I just said. Yes, I agree with you, and to an, to an extent, that's great. But it's very often, more often than not, a Westernized version of Christianity that they're adopting. And second of all, that that just pushes other, their non-Christian neighbors further away from Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm not talking about the believers in the world. I'm talking about the non-believers. When you go to the majority world, which is black and brown and yellow, when you go to the majority world, and you talk to non-Christians, and you or, you know, you talk to missionaries who minister in these places, and you ask them, what's maybe one of the number one reasons why a non-Christian not a Christian, a non-Christian in that area would not want to become a Christian. Why do they not want to be a Christian? I guarantee you, the number one reason is going to be because they see it as a Western white religion, not because they don't mm. believe in God, not because they don't believe in the supernatural, not because they're atheists, not because not because they don't, not because they're like, well, I believe in science, not the Bible. Not not the reasons that you usually see in the white world, but in the black mm. and brown world, the number one reason why a person would not want to be a Christian is because of the identity politic associated with Christianity. And that, again, Mm. I would say started with Constantine.
0: Mm, that's great and just so interesting to think about it just like starting with Constantine which is something I never really thought about but it makes so much sense when you're talking about it here Vince um Mr. Phil Fox who is a Native American says this is the biggest issue within the Indian community um they only know how to practice Christianity to assimilate into a Western style of Christianity so I think I totally see what you're getting um so at this point here I'd love to talk a little bit about like the history of like what does the early church look like in all these different areas of the world um so you start talking about like what does Christianity look like in Africa in the first few centuries um and showing like it's global roots
1: yeah that's a great question i mean uh to kind of tie those together i would say that that you know you have you have two things when we look at how the church grew and what it looked like uh like mm-hmm. especially non western world like in africa or middle east or asia mm-hmm. i would say there i would say two things i would say that again and this just kind of shows why we can't there's a degree to which you, you know uh it's it's a little bit difficult to overestimate the ramifications on christianity that happened mm-hmm. in the fourth century with constantine because two Excuse me. The two things I want to point out is that in the beginning, in the first few centuries, you uh, before that happened, you have the gospel going in every direction. And it's really just taking on local forms. And and again, there's no sense in which um, that it needs to kind of assimilate to any one culture, but it can just take on. So you see this beautiful happening where the Bible is being translated into multiple languages already in the first and second and third centuries. You have, it, uh, you have it written in Hebrew and Greek, but then it's already appearing in Syriac, in Coptic, in other, you know, uh, in other languages. And so you, mm-hmm. we see the church growing. You even see examples of church councils uh, even before Constantine, in Persia, in Carthage, and all these other places. Uh, you see evidence of Christianity in India and where they're, again, kind of uh, creating their own uh, style of worship, their own style of um of mm-hmm. and even history of connecting to the Apostle Thomas. You see the gospel going everywhere. And again, with no sense that it that that it like that there's a head or that there's like one centralized place. That's like that a, a, a culture or a region that's over the global church. But again, mm-hmm. that's the one. But in the fourth century with Constantine now, as the Roman Uh, empire and the Roman church and then later European church continuously begins to express Christianity um, as like it belongs to them. Now you see Christians in the non-Western world or in the non-Roman empire, or even maybe in some of the fringe areas of the Roman empire, like Syria or, or Egypt or, or Arabia, you see them now are being, now are being confronted with this, with this perception that Christianity is a Roman religion. Mm. I think at, at, at that point, not, then you see a more kind of maybe nuanced or complicated way of, of Christians in that part of the world either it, choosing to embrace that kind of idea or choosing to reject it and kind of do their own thing. And you see, you see kind of both. And so really, I think there's a lot of analogies for Christians of color today who are trying to figure out, again, how do we decolonize? How do we kind of begin to separate ourselves not from, I'm not saying like white theology is bad. I've, I've, I've been, you know, very blessed from like white theologians, worship music, mm-hmm. like you know, all kind of things. But, but the idea of white supremacist Christianity or the idea mm-hmm. that, that, that it's the only way to practice it. So yeah, that, I mean, when we say decolonize and also to affirm the beauty of cultures of color and our ancestry and the way in which our culture is actually also compatible. I mean, there is so much, like European culture that has been expressed in Christianity. I mean, Easter, like every time we say Easter, we're invoking the name of an Anglo-Saxon goddess. And so, mm. and fine, every time we put up a Christmas tree, we're evoking an Anglo-Saxon religious symbol. Because, But we don't even think about it because we've been so used to Western culture and cr- being expressed in Christianity. But then if my Native American brothers and sisters want to have a Christian sweat lodge uh, or have a Christian uh, like totem pole, now all of a sudden that's a question. Like, oh, you can't do mm. syncretism. I'm like, oh, but- but, but Christmas trees are okay and Christmas wreaths are okay. Do we know where those things came from? And so again, there's a, there's some hypocrisy there. Uh, and so we need to be able to free up people of color to also embrace their own ancestry uh, mm. and, 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 and find the place where that fits in. And of course, all of our cultures have aspects where they're sinful and not in line with the gospel, but that's for all of us. And so there's a, there's a rejecting and an embrace of our cultures that happens as believers. And so we got to free people up to do that. And I think that as we do that, it would be really interesting to connect with some of those early uh, communities in African Asia, especially post-constantine, where they now had they were now being confronted with this idea that, you know, Christianity is a Roman thing and it became more centralized in Constantinople and Rome and and there began to be more like theological and, and and liturgical and ecumenical kind of just cultural elements that started to take on a lot of Roman flavor that a lot of Christians around the world were not. Uh, were, were and were not. like so In some ways, they embraced these ideas. Uh, you also you also started to see uh, Roman racist attitudes about blackness and whiteness start to come forth in Christian literature. And you saw some Christians in Africa, for example, reject that idea and say, no, black is beautiful. And you see uh, some of the earliest African paintings uh, are from Ethiopia where you see Jesus and Mary being depicted with black skin and, and African hair and features. But then you also see paintings Nubia or uh, where or in in Egypt where you see kind of racist uh, Romanized uh, in the embrace of kind of a Romanized perception of race being embraced and this idea that blackness is sinful and whiteness is good you see even Nubians embracing this idea in their paintings so you see a, even with that kind of juxtaposition you see a mixture um, of these kinds of things and in the in the same way uh, in the you know in the Middle East um, you know like uh, as the as the Roman church began to develop and started to also kind of define what orthodoxy was according to their language, according to their concepts, especially after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, that was a major schism and a major breaking point in the church that we really need to explore more of the implications of that Mm -hmm. because it's a very consequential council that, you know, most of us talk about the Council of Nicaea, but also the Council of Chalcedon was very influential because that was when the Roman church decided to frame orthodox christology in a way that made sense to them but did not make sense to most of the christians in the middle east or in asia uh, or in africa but interestingly in the middle east there were many there were many christians who who agreed with that theology of the roman empire and and except mm-hmm. and there were but the majority of them didn't and as those and and as that debate kind of raged on it started to take on racial and ethnic kind of overtones to it to where most of the Christians of the Middle East, whether they were Syrian uh, or Arabian or Persian, they they rejected it, but and they had their own Christology and using their own language and their own concepts um, in, in that, that were different than the Greek words that were being used. But they often started to articulate as this is the Syrian theology and we reject Mm -hmm. Roman theology or this is the Chaldean or the Babylonian kind of uh, theology. Or this is the Persian theology. Mm -hmm. uh, And they rejected the the Roman theology. And this is interesting, is that their neighbors among them who actually embraced the Roman theology, who were still, you know, Middle Eastern like them, they were Syrian or 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 whatever, Arabian, just like them, Mm -hmm. Arabic or Syriac or whatever, just like them. Uh, but they embraced the theology of the Council of Chalcedon. The, the, the ones that didn't called them Melkites, which is a word that means like of the king. And so that was like mm-hmm. this. That was basically a way of saying, and they meant the Roman king by that. So basically it was another, that was like their way of calling them sellouts. Were, that was. The, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a nice thing to do, but I'm just saying that it speaks to kind of the dynamic that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. about what Christianity was like, that, that um, after Constantine and going forward. Christians of color in the Middle East and Asia and Africa had to kind of navigate like degrees to which they began to imbibe kind of a Romanized Eurocentric kind of imperialistic uh, and even often racist idea of Christianity or mm. ways that they rejected that and said no thank you uh, and they would often even say and sometimes still say to this day that no thank you we actually have our own theology that traces back to some of the apostles and need your your doctrine or your ideas of race or your ideas of culture because we actually have our own thank you very much um and and you see and you also see them beginning to develop their own styles of worship i mean we could be here all day talking about that but i would just say that like i mean you know you have like for example syrian Madroshe, which is like a um a style of poetry and music and live communal performance that Ephraim the syrian wrote and did theology and so even the fact that theology was done in the syriac speaking world through poetry rather than Mm -hmm. in the world which had a rational intellectual focus to it and done through treatises but in the syriac speaking world theology was done through musical poetry that was still very mm-hmm. truly profound read the writings of ephraim the syrian you'll see what i'm saying but mm-hmm. that's example or you have the unique liturgical style of music um you know the degwa music that was created by Yared the saint in the sixth century that that infuses african percussive instruments and and uh and and sistrums and all kinds of unique african music to create a unique style of of african and christian uh liturgical music that's unique to the ethiopian church you know that and this this is something a lot of people don't want to talk about people especially who are anti-christian but the ethiopian orthodox church is actually considered an african indigenous religion and usually Hmm. when about christianity so oh, it's a western religion or it's a near eastern religion but it's not african you know yoruba religion yeah. and, and zulu religion or whatever but ethiopian orthodoxy is actually an african indigenous religion because the unique style of it their scriptures their liturgy is so unlike everything else and it utilizes the only african sub-saharan african mm-hmm. writing system in the world um and and the bible was first translated it was the first book so the first book ever written in the oldest sub-Saharan uh, writing system that's still in use today was the mm. Word of God. And so huh. in the Garima Gospels. And so uh, anyway, that's just a few examples. But yeah, they definitely did you make it their own. Um, but And they also had to kind of navigate and deal with like white supremacists and kind of Roman imperialist visions of Christianity. And to some degree, kind of, um, you know, that would sometimes result in some internalized racism. Uh, but at the same time, time, there are in many of these parts of the world still vibrant communities of Christianity that have still uh, lasted to this day um, and, uh, and, and are great, again, examples of, of, of the global nature of the church that's always been the case.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. Um, so you have all these different uh, cultures and groups around the world, especially like in, in the early days, um, worshiping God, following Christ. So did they like usually like keep a sense of like orthodoxy? Like, you know, like Christians today, we talk about like believing like, in like the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, things like that. Did they keep that divinity, like that, um, like that fundamental core of Christianity, but then like kind of like practice the religion in terms of like worship and like how they express their theology in kind of like a unique ways? Is that kind of what you're getting at here?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, they would many people in the heritage communities today would say not only did they hold orthodoxy, they were the ones that that helped to articulate it. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, you yeah. Know, Ignatius, you know, who was mm-hmm. the Egypt. He was Egyptian and he was exiled for his defense of orthodoxy. That's another going back to Constantine, that's another reason why his conversion is a little dubious, because if he was a Christian, then it's a question of, well, what kind of Christian was he? Because, you mm-hmm. know. That point, they in that point in Egypt, they were debating, and, and across the Roman Empire, they were debating about whether or not Jesus was God. And the Arians were yeah. saying that he wasn't. And Athanasius and the and Constantine at the Council of Nicaea affirmed the fact that Jesus was God and that was held as orthodox. But then he flip-flopped and he exiled Athanasius, and so did his son, the Emperor Constans, mm. who was an ardent A- uh, Arian. Mm. Atheist, but who was an Arian, and yet despite being exiled, despite being persecuted for his defense of orthodoxy, Athanasius held tight. And then later, theologians like the Cappadocians reaffirmed Nicene orthodoxy, the belief that Jesus was God, at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And so, you know, they a lot of these communities say not only did we affirm orthodoxy, we helped to we defended it. Uh, at mm-hmm. time. And, and another great example of that is, um. I mentioned Constantius, Emperor Constantius, who was the son of Constantine, who was the emperor, and he was a heretic. He was an Arian, which meant that he was a Christian that believed that Jesus wasn't God, which is not mm. really Christian, which is why I put quote marks up. But in his tenure as empire, as emperor in the like 330s, 340s, mid, mid-4th century, um, he was trying to promote that heretical theology uh, all throughout the Roman Empire. And some mm. of the strongest, like Athanasius, some of the strongest... Defenders of Orthodoxy were from Africa, like Athanasius. But then during Athanasius's tenure as Pope of Egypt, that was actually the same moment when Ethiopia became a Christian nation. And that was during the time of King Azana. King Azana was the Ethiopian king uh, or the Nagush, as it's called in Ge'ez. And uh, during that same time period, he met a missionary from Syria named Fermentius and he heard the gospel, freely embraced it. And and he uh, accepted Christianity as the national religion of Ethiopia. And he even inscribed tablets that indicated from his own, uh, you know, from his own imperial court. So you have Ethiopian documents that were some of the o- these are some of the oldest writings in the Ethiopian language, which means that they're some of the oldest sub-Saharan African writings ever <laughs> in any kind. And yet they clearly profess Christian faith that this king had. And that also many people in his kingdom had. And one of the Mm. interesting things is that in one of his inscriptions, he even calls Jesus God. Now that Mm. is, uh, uh, that is so um, consequential and important because remember what I just said, that at that same time, the Roman empire was actually under a king who was a heretic who was saying Jesus was not Mm. God. And so at the same time that the king of the Roman empire was saying that Jesus is not God at that same time, the the first sub-saharan african people group embraced christianity and not only that but they expressly said that jesus is god and so if anything africans may have contributed more to orthodoxy than europeans did uh you know mm. many orthodox folks in europe as well but that's just a short answer to you know say that yes most definitely that they held to orthodoxy and of course there were heretics uh you know in africa in the middle east and asia you know manichaeans who like you know uh, believed in this person named Mani, that he was the Holy Spirit. And and they, but they were, I mean, Augustine was one of those. I mean, they were in the Roman Empire too. They were everywhere. And there were Gnostics and there were um, you know, Marcionites and all kinds of, of heretics, but they were everywhere. They were in Europe too. So there were heretics everywhere. Uh, and there still are heretics everywhere. Um, but but Orthodox Christianity was the dominant strand of Christianity uh, in Africa and in the Middle East and in Asia. And even though uh, I don't, you know, we don't have time to get all into the deep history You know, I would say read the book. But I would just say now that even when you look at the divide, I mentioned the Council of Chalcedon and how many of these different communities. Part of the reason we don't hear about them is because much of Western Christianity has even rejected or just dismissed a lot of these Christian histories as heretics uh, unjustifiably now. Manichaean who believes in money and worships money or if you're talking about a Gnostic who doesn't even believe in the resurrection of the body or, you know, uh, or if you're talking about, you know, true heresies that don't affirm the humanity and divinity of Christ, the Trinity, the word of God, like all that kind of stuff, then yeah, but 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 the majority of Christians in these places in Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia, Syria, India, Persia, China, um, most of these Christians, the majority of them were Orthodox, but they did at the, at the Council of the Chalcedon 451, there was a schism where the Christians, there was three major groups. There was the Roman uh, and I'm just kind of in broad strokes there. Yeah this it's not this clean cut but just for simplicity sake, in the roman empire the majority view was was um was called the chalcedonian view and they said jesus is one person but he has two natures and then they had greek ways of defining what the distinction between person and nature but then in uh in africa and in the middle east the majority view was called miaphysite where they said one nature and they said jesus is one person in one nature then in the persian empire which was was also the head church of really all of Asia Christianity spread and you know check out the book for that too great powerful examples of Christianity uh going way back in 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 Tibet in Mongolia in China uh in 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 India it even it even reached before colonialism even Indonesia uh and Malaysia I mean it was Christian the gospel was going everywhere and and all of that was rooted in the Persian church and the Persian Church they had a completely different way of talking about Christology so the Roman views one person, two natures. The Middle Eastern and African view said one person, one nature. The Persian view said one person, two natures, and two kind of like, the best way to translate it is like kind of instantiations or or kind of conversations. And that gets into a whole long conversation about what they meant in their East Syriac language by it. But the point is that I'm bringing out is that all these three views that are still around today, these views are still around today and they're still divided. Um, And most Western Protestants just kind of just kind of embrace the Chalcedonian view, uh, which was the dominant view of the Roman church. And even after after the Protestant Reformation, most of them just kind of embrace the Chalcedonian view. And then therefore that is why even most of us as Protestants uh, or those that claim that title um, just kind of embrace the language of Chalcedon, one person, two natures. And we will sometimes even just again, dismiss or, or not look at these histories and just assume they're heretics because some white man in history said they were. Mm, yeah. the evangelical uh, church history textbooks will often either not cover these histories, or if they do, will do it in a very Eurocentric way and say, well, these Christians were, they were they were fanatical, or they were radical, or they were extreme, and the Roman Calcedonian view was the balanced view. Mm. And the Eurocentric way of saying it, I'll just sum it up to say that if you read the writings of these theologians from these three different camps, I would argue that all of them were Orthodox, that mm-hmm. all, all three of them were and are Orthodox uh, in the sense of believing in the Trinity. I mean, yeah, we all might disagree on secondary issues, but even like even Protestants disagree on issues like, mm-hmm. baptism, you know, tongues, all that kind of stuff. But when we talk about Orthodox, I'm talking about, again, we're talking about the gospel message, you know, like mm-hmm the Trinity and, and Jesus and died and on the cross for our sins and rise again. The Bible is the word of God. That's what I'm talking about. And mm. all of these camps would affirm all of that. They just have different ways. And and they all would affirm the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human and that he, mm. is the, he is the person of the Trinity and he took on flesh and actually lived, actually died, actually rose again and is the only, uh, his death on the cross, the only remission of sins and his resurrections means we can have new life. So they're all orthodox. They just have different ways in their languages of, of talking about how does his humanity how do we talk about his humanity and his divinity? And they'll say that they some of them will say that they are in one person. They're in one or and one nature. Others of them will say, well they're one person but two natures. Others will say, well they're one person but they're two natures and with own their own instantiations. And I'm like, all right, all of y'all are Christians. Like you just yeah at this point. Uh and and honestly even many of their leaders have said that even today in modern ecumenical movements. Um, and so 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 yes all of them while there were heretics in all these regions all of these major camps uh, in these parts of the world were and, and are orthodox believers and brothers mm. in Christ.
0: Yeah, that's so great. Thank you for um, unpacking that here. I have one more question for you, and we'll start to wrap things up here. Um, but like, why do you think understanding the global roots of Christianity matters? Obviously, you've, you've written books on this, and it's an important thing to understand with like regards to like apologetic and theological um, questions. Um, but like, wh- why does it, all of this matter um, in your opinion, Vince?
1: I mean, I think really it really just goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like I was trying to say, and I, and, and you know, I, I want to say it again, cause it's so, I'm glad you asked that question. Cause I think we can't say this enough that mm-hmm. again, the, the, um, the perception that Christianity is a white man's religion or a Western religion is the single greatest obstacle to the gospel in the world. And that mm-hmm. is because most people in the world who reject Christianity do so because they associate it with Western mm-hmm. white, uh, identity and they see it as antithetical to their identity. So it's I mean so many of us can try to address that 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 crisis that all mm-hmm. of us are facing from different angles whether it's you know by all of us need to get to work on on showing the world a different vision of what christianity is that we we cannot afford any longer to be defensive or be like no 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 you know no you know nobody's saying that like we need to be honest about the ways that all of us are saying that even if we don't want to be saying it all you know all of us uh, you know have been complicit to some degree of of perpetuating the idea that christianity is a western white man's religion and that as practiced by western white people is the best version so mm-hmm. all of us need to get to work at deconstructing and destabilizing that and that's not a, that's not a call to reject white people or white theology or white culture but it's a call to reject the idea that christianity as practiced in eurocentric ways is the only way to do it that we need to start deconstructing that and we all need to get to work at representing the gospel in uniquely contextualized ways, just like we see in the gospel. We see the, the Jewish Christians like John communicating mm. the gospel in Gentile ways by calling Jesus the Logos um, and, and all quoting Hellenistic philosophers. We all need to get to work at presenting the gospel in ways that are unique to our own cultures um, and embracing our own culture. And yes, of course, transforming and rejecting it where necessary, but also embracing it because God's image is revealed in each culture, each race in unique ways just like God's image is imprinted on men and women in unique ways, and only together do we fully It reflect the image of God. It works the same with race and culture. John looked up in Revelation 7, 9, and he saw in heaven, in eternity, a multitude of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we need to stop thinking, whether consciously or subconsciously, that at one point we're going to get past race. We're going to get over it. I mean, if what we mean by that is we're going to get past oppression or racism or segregation or division, then yes, we're going to get past that. But we're not, I hope we don't ever think, and I think a lot of us do, that we're going to get past noticing that some of us are black and brown and yellow and red and white, and, and that some of us speak different language. When John looked up and saw that vision, he saw and heard Spanish and Yoruba and Chinese and French and, 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 and Tongan, and he heard all the languages. He saw mm. that everybody was not doused in kind of kind of um, homogenous paint that made us all the same and everyone's singing in one language. He saw ethnic and cultural linguistic diversity. So all of us need to get to work on living out that vision now here on earth. And for the sake of the gospel, so that people who have been understandably kind of alienated from Christianity and say, Well, I don't want anything to do with that. If it means I have to like stop being who I am, we have to present to them and say, No, you don't have to stop being who you are. In some ways you will, but not nearly in all mm-hmm. the that you thought you needed to. And 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 we need to, I think all, that's why I think that's why it's so important. And and for me, I think we can do that through worship, through uh, through theology, through, through preaching, through um, you know so many of ways, biblical interpretation. Uh, you know, but my contribution or attempted contribution at this is through church history to tell mm. more well rounded story of history that, that is inclusive of God's global church, and also to look back at history and see, especially how, as we try to do that now, as we try to contextualize the gospel in our own cultural context, maybe it can be inspiring to look back and see that that's not a new thing, that's not like a mm. post or like you know, postmodern idea that just we just thought up in the 20th century. But that mm-hmm. has been around since day one. And if we go back and look at that, it can help us understand number one that Christianity has always been global. And it can also inspire us to contextualize it in new ways that draw upon but also build upon our new and always ever changing identities uh, that are that are constantly in flux, but also are part of who we are. Uh, and so I think that's 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 kind of the why.
0: Mm, that's so great, Vince. Um, and I appreciate um, all your time and answering these questions. I really appreciate it. And I think everyone else listening did as well. It was really good um, getting into like the global roots of Christianity. Um, so thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Nate was working hard in the live chat. He put links to your books um, through the chat and they're also in the description. So you can check out *A Multitude of All Peoples. Great book. Um, but Vince, that's about all the time we have. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been uh, great to be here.
0: It's been so good. And thank you, everyone who tuned in. Mr. Phil Fox, Michelle, Will, Danu, um, Nate, everyone else. It's been so much fun. And if you enjoy the show, as always, I encourage you to subscribe if you're new. And if you enjoy this, you can support us on patreon.com. slash I apologetics for as little as a dollar a month there. So your support on Patreon helps a lot. Or you can just join and become a YouTube member. But Vince, thank you so much for your time and everyone tuning in. Hope you have a good one and God bless.